Welcome to episode 15 of Blue Jays Happy Hour. I'm Nick Ashbourne, joined as always by Andrew Stoughton, and I'm going to get it out of the way early. We have a guest today, which is Sportsnet senior writer David Singh, who's going to talk to us about his uh, excellent features on Alec Manoa, George Springer, and Alejandro Kirk. I've been so bad at introducing our guests off the top, <laughs> just had to get it, get through that. Um, we're in the middle of a pretty fun time watching Blue Jays baseball. They are back in Toronto, Stoughton, 6-1 and one homestand. What is the general vibe check on this team other than good? Other than good, I don't, maybe great. I don't know. It's uh, it's obviously been really uplifting for the team to be back in Toronto. It's been real nice to play teams like Kansas City and Cleveland, uh, which have given them a bit of a cushion here and, and really propelled them and allowed them to take advantage of the momentum. Uh, and we're going to see what happens against Boston over the weekend here, uh, which are you know not not that you can't it can't be a must win game at the start of August here, but it is a uh, it's a series where the Jays are in a real great position to to claw back some ground in the AL East and make it a real fun stretch run beyond this. So uh, excitement for that, uh, also trepidation for you know the Blue Jays playing a tough team because they have not played as well against the good teams this year as they have against the bad ones. Yeah, they're definitely not, like, sometimes you get those teams that sort of play up or down to the competition. They're not really one of those teams this year. <laughs> they play at their level, and they beat shitty teams, and then they... And then the bullpen uh, loses them games against the good teams, yeah. Yeah, but the thing that's interesting <laughs> is that, you know, right now, the Blue Jays, as we record this, their playoff odds are at 40%, according to fan graphs. Um you know, obviously it feels a little bit higher when you're in the middle of that kind of run that they're on, but they've made up some serious ground. And if the Red Sox falter or if they put a hurt on them over the weekend series, which is by no means uh, a guarantee, suddenly the Red Sox look like they could be catchable. And I know this team is getting back Chris Sale. I have a little bit of uh, doubt that that's going to be the big difference maker for them. But a few weeks ago, I think we would have said, even post-Barrios trade, kind of immediately out of the trade deadline, I think we might have said, oh, well, the Rays and Red Sox aren't really catchable, and we're really going for that second wild card, and that's kind of where their hopes lie. Mm-hmm. But And I'm not saying, I don't know if the division is in play, because I think the Rays are really good, mm-hmm. and they're a fair amount behind the Rays, but... The Red Sox could falter, and now they're, the gap is a little bit smaller. And if it gets smaller still, then now both wild cards are in play. Now maybe you don't need to beat the Yankees, which I think they could conceivably do. I don't know. It just seems like the the picture has changed significantly since we last talked. Like There are two games fewer out of the playoffs, and some of the teams in front of them, specifically the Red Sox, and you know the A's haven't done anything particularly special look a little bit more vulnerable than I might have said a week ago. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I think, uh, I mean, this is maybe wish casting, but like, Boston feels to me like if they fall behind the Jays and Yankees, if that, you know, if that happens, which is we're still a long way from that happening, uh, that's going to be hard for them to get back. Like, I don't know that uh, uh, Chris Sale is going to help, but all along we've looked at that roster and thought, you know, how are they doing this? Um, you know, Oakland, I think, is is... is a better team probably than Boston maybe maybe not but they're they, I'm, I'm more concerned about their like uh, durability in this race and obviously the Yankees are probably uh, still have their best baseball ahead of them uh, but the Red Sox I, I just you know they finished below Baltimore last year and then what what did they do this winter like not a ton 
Um, a, lo- a lot of what they did is just stay healthy. Like yeah. every time I go and check out that Red Sox roster resource page, shout out to Fangrass roster resource pages. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just no one on the IL for them. Uh, I think that's been a huge part of their success. Like, do they have, you know, seven competent starters? No, but they have sort of four or five, and those guys have been healthy all year long. But, um, yeah. Or and you know the lineup hasn't been out. But and to be fair, the Blue Jays, um, you know. Obviously, the bullpen has been a disaster from a health perspective. But, in, you know, the Blue Jays haven't lost a Bichette or a Guerrero or a Semyon. And Springer's been back for a good chunk of time now. Like, it's not like the Blue Jays have been totally crippled by injury. No, that's true. Though, I mean, seeing Vlad get hit on the back of the hand there on uh, on Thursday night was definitely a moment where it's like, oh, man, that's not really where you would like to get hit. Uh, no. Praise praise up to the to the pad that he wears there it on the back of his hand fun watching these games at Rogers Center because it's it goes to show how quickly we sort of habituate to things like it it should look almost abnormal like well they've been away for this for so long this is crazy but two games in you're like oh yeah that's you know that's what right field is supposed to look like and that's <laughs> yeah. to, to also to their credit they made the at least the backstop for sort of the pitcher hitter interactions look a lot like Rogers Center at the other parks yes, I, I felt did. I thought that the the viewing experience I thought was going to be more jarring and I'd be more sort of excited to see, oh, this is in our familiar confines and this is, um, and a lot of the stuff felt monumental. They did a great job with some of the videos they did. I'm not downplaying any of that, but it is amazing how quickly it's, it just seems normal again. Yeah, it really, it really is. It really is. But, uh, the bigger thing will be with Boston in town over the weekend, uh, having fans actually cheer for the Blue Jays. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> And I, I think they were still selling tickets for the Saturday of the doubleheader. You need, you got to have the whole 15. If you can only have 15,000, you got to be able to get 15,000 out there for the Red Sox, you'd think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know how the ticket prices work on that. Maybe you pay, do you pay less for doubleheaders? If you should pay less for seven innings of baseball. I've not, <laughs> I've never been to a doubleheader I, myself. I don't find that baseball owners generally do stuff like that i think we'll learn about no. we'll learn about their their whole thing we got a whole winter to, to deal with that but, oh yeah um, that's gonna be that's gonna be fun labor issues well Always hopefully they're smart enough to know not to uh not to let it not to let it get there um that there's no i don't know there's no there, 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 there's there, it doesn't do anyone any good to start missing games because of a labor dispute so they're gonna have Before to we move move later. move off this homestand, I like again. You know the vibes are there, the excitement is there. People are back in the ballpark. Is there anything in sort of the seven games since we last talked, or, or that make you feel differently about the team, other than you know the standings have changed, the competitive picture has changed? Is there anything in the in the content of those games uh, that stood out to you? Because I, for me, one of them is, you know, Stephen Matz gave a good start. Mm-hmm. So that's something that hasn't happened in a long time. I don't love six-man rotation, um, but that was pretty encouraging. And then obviously, there, you know, there's a Springer stuff as well. But is there anything else that kind of jumped out of like, okay, not only is this a good feeling thing, but this about the team is encouraging? I mean, I think that they're, you know, they're sort of incremental, but like, you know, Biggio was on the IL, which means we don't have to see him attempt to feel the position that he can't, which is good, you know. Maybe a little too much Bravik Bolera for my taste at third base. I think that, you know, I get the 
I get that he's a switch hitter, but I, I think Espinal has played very, very well, and he feels very comfortable seeing him there uh, at third. And that was that's you know maybe not your maybe not a long term everyday guy, but I think that's good. And I think that you know Corey Dickerson is going to help a little bit too, though we haven't seen a ton out of him as yet. Uh, but those are just incre- incremental improvements, and I think that the defense is, uh, you know, not catastrophic. I don't think it has been all year. I think it's been, you know, a problem, uh, but also sort of, you know, the the price you pay for getting Teoscar in the lineup and Guriel in the lineup and Bichette, you know, making that a thing, you know, him becoming a proper shortstop and uh, getting the reps that he needs to try to continue to do that. Um so I, I think that's been good. I think it, it's, but like I say, like I said off the top, like it's the the big test is going to be playing good teams, and you got to beat the good teams to get to where they need to be. So it is time. But yeah, the starters have been uh, wonderful. It's been real, real encouraging. And also, I guess I would say like Adam Simber and like Tim Meza and the the guys in the bullpen who, you know, the the pecking order is still constantly shuffling. Um, but I think that they've, you know. Uh, Simber in particular. I mean, this is this is a who knows how long this moment will last, but uh, but that's been a real win for them. Yeah, Simber's been fantastic. I think, like you mentioned, I'm not as anti Bijou as you are. This year he's been <laughs> banged up, and it's a lost year. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I honestly, it's funny because I've talked before about how Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is probably better as sort of a super utility guy and not someone stuck at one position. I think Biggio is almost miscast as a super utility guy, and maybe he's just a second baseman. Like, maybe that's what he is. He's just a guy who plays a decent second base and can probably, when he's healthy, hit sort of league average-ish, and that's okay for a second baseman. That's not really what the Blue Jays need uh, out of him, but, like, he's not great at any of the other positions, is he? Is there any position other than second base where you feel great about Biggio? I don't even feel that great about him at second, but, yeah, you know. I don't know about great, but, like. You can throw him there for a bit, but, yeah, I think long-term he gets exposed in the outfield and at third, for sure, and at first base, which we've now seen. Well, first base is just silly. They're trying anybody there because they don't have Mash or Rowdy Telez. I was going to bring this up later in the show, but why not? Throw it in there. Since the All-Star break, Rowdy Telez, WRC Plus, over 200, and that's the sixth best mark in the entire major leagues. I Left-handed mean, power that they don't have. <laughs> I mean, I have no qualms with the trade. Yeah, I don't think anybody was, does, right? But it, 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 it's it's weird that, that, that people aren't, you know, wringing their hands about that. But it Because uh, you just, you're like, okay, well, he had plenty of opportunities here to do that here. Uh, so I don't think, you, you know, I don't think anybody brews the fact that he's, you know, he didn't get more chances to produce the way that he did earlier this season, which was not at all. And basically the way that he did for his whole Blue Jays career, save for those two weeks or whatever it was last season. Um, but well, it's the, nice the, to see him succeed. If he, if he can become that guy somewhere else, you know, uh, it sucks a little bit, but also uh, Trevor Richards been, uh, been useful too. And that, that was a, a needed piece. So. Well, the Brewers just have the magic way of turning struggling, thick sluggers from the Blue Jays <laughs> into useful players. Then they should just not stop trading those kind of guys. Next time the Blue Jays make a trade with the Brewers, they should send them like a five foot ten, 180-pound center fielder because then he won't turn into a star because the Brewers <laughs> have, have it figured with the big guys. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a guest this week we're really excited about. It's senior Sportsnet writer... David Singh. We're going to talk to him about some of his features of the Blue Jays that you guys should definitely check out.
We are now joined by David Singh, Sportsnet senior writer. He's a guy who does a lot of really interesting features and kind of shows a little bit more of the human side of the Blue Jays. And that's been harder to do uh, in the last few months with the Blue Jays not being in Toronto. But we wanted to bring David on, especially because he just did a really good feature on Alec Manoa and his mother, who has become a little bit internet famous in Blue Jays circles. David, how did that feature come together? How did you have the idea and sort of what was pursuing it like? Well, first off, thanks for having me on, Nick and Andrew. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, with that feature, like everybody else in Blue Jays land, I was um, captivated watching her at Yankee Stadium during Alex's first start. Um, just the emotion she had, it was something you don't see all the time. And, you know, as we all know, it was unique in that there wasn't a lot of people at Yankee Stadium. So that right there kind of, you know, it, it, it set off like a little bit of a, I guess like a, a spider sense. I like to call it spider sense when, when I'm describing it. And then after the game, when Alec was talking to Hazel and he had that comment about uh, his mother going hungry, right right after that, I emailed my editor at Sportsnet and I was like, okay, we got to get to the bottom of this. I got to get to the bottom of this. Like there's got to be a story there. So from there, I reached out to the Jays and, and, you know, got the ball moving. And Alec was, it turned out he was willing to speak about that. And so I spoke to him and then I ended up speaking to his mom. And it was something that um, while it was hard for both of them to discuss, they both agreed themselves that it was worth discussing because it's part of Alex's life story and it's part of Susanna's life story. So they were more than willing to talk about uh, the troubles that the family went through and the dark side to, you know, Alex's youth and, and what led to his success today. I think it's interesting that you focus on that part because that's the part of the story that I think stands out to a lot of people and it stands out to me. And what's interesting about what you do for our readers who aren't super familiar is like you do a lot of features, you know, you've done features on the Canucks, like you kind of jump in and do a lot of features on teams and people that you don't necessarily already have relationships with. And so this is a very sensitive topic to talk about, you know, someone having financial struggles to the extent that they're going hungry or like, you know, in the story, talk about how they have an amount of money for the brothers to split up to go to Taco Bell. And like, that's literally how they're going to eat. Uh, and it's pretty touching stuff. How do you broach that with people that yeah don't aren't necessarily going to be comfortable with you off the hop because you don't have that pre-existing relationship yeah so it's it, with feature writing it's all about parachuting in right you got to parachute into different places um i would say it, for me that just boils down to my interviewing technique and and what that is is a it's not an interview i look at it as conversations with people and b it's also being forthright with people right off the bat so letting them know what I'm trying to do with a story and kind of laying the groundwork that way so that they know that these questions aren't coming out of the blue. Uh, and it's always a point where, you know, whether it's Susanna uh, Luch, whether, you know, you're having a conversation with her before the interview even starts explaining who I am, the types of stories I've written and what I'd like to write here. And same thing with, uh, you know, we mentioned the Canucks with uh, Pedersen. It was a kind of a touching story about his, the deportation of his friends. So it's getting the agreement ahead of time that, um, you know, we're going to be talking about some sensitive stuff. Are you okay with it? That's generally how I approach it. And then beyond that, it's just being empathetic and listening in, in conversations. I 
one of the best things I learned back in school was the moment you start to treat people like they're filling a tape recorder is the moment you lose them, right? So I always am very cognizant of that, that the other person needs to know that I'm invested in them 100%. I've done my research in them and their life story, and I'm there for a conversation, and I'm there because I genuinely care about what they have to say. I'm not there for them to just be a voice on my audio device. So I think all those things combined uh, help people to open up during these types of interviews. You mentioned uh, kind of off the hop that you were really captivated with Susanna's energy at the ballpark. And like I said before, that kind of hit Blue Jays Twitter right away and people were excited about seeing that. Did that energy come through when you had the opportunity to speak to her for an extended period of time? Yeah, I would say so. She was, I got her on a good day. She was, um, as you see in the intro to the story, she was um, setting herself up to watch Alec pitch, uh, I think the day after, and watch her other son. Um, He was going to pitch the same day. Uh, Yeah, she's she's an intense person. She's very um, uh, genuine and honest in how she speaks. Uh, I thought that that was a, it, w- it was a fun interview. I really enjoyed it. She really opened up um, quite a bit. And then also just in the background interviews that I did, I interviewed uh, some people that were familiar with Alec in high school, some people that worked at his high school, um, the athletic director and one of his coaches. And they were telling me that the Susanna that we saw at Yankee Stadium, that's actually her. Like that is not her putting on an act. That was the exact phrasing he used he, he said that you know at their games in high school the, the brothers the Manoa brothers she was just like that in high school so um, she's a very passionate person and I think I'm excited to see now that you know, we have fans at Rogers Center soon I guess Americans are going to start coming in um, it'll be fun to see her when she's at Rogers Center I mean I can only imagine right her decked out in that Blue Jays uh, that white Blue Jays jersey um the old school one, it'll be fun to watch. And I think people are, I think it's only the beginning of her introduction or her time with Blue Jays Nation. I'm sure um, we're going to see a lot more of her in the coming days. On this podcast, we've always kind of had an Alec Manoa focus. I'd love to talk about that story for all of our time. But there are a couple other ones that uh, that really spoke to me that you've done recently. And one of them is the sort of the George Springer feature that I feel like kind of set the table for Blue Jays fans expectations of who, you know, who is George Springer? Uh, what can we expect sort of beyond, you know, beyond the numbers, beyond the production? And I'm wondering about that story because from a premise perspective, it's kind of like, you know, George Springer is the glue guy. George Springer is this, you know, this guy people like being around good personality. That premise alone is a bit tricky because people are going to tell you, you know, good things about most, you know, people are incentivized to say good things about people. So how do you kind of cut through the generic, oh, yeah, he's a good guy and find the story of like, wait a minute. No, this is sort of a special personality that can bring a team together. Yeah. Just before I talk about that, though, just to peel the curtain back, I really wanted when the Jays were talking, uh, you know, there, there was lots of rumors about big stars they were going to get. Francisco Lindor was, um, was uh, mentioned heavily. If you remember, I guess this was January. I was banking on Lindor coming because I had a great story idea for that. So I was very disappointed when that didn't happen. Uh, but yeah, when the Springer um, signing came about, immediately I knew, all right, I, I got to try and do something on Springer. I was going to try and do something on whoever they acquired. 
And yeah, to answer your question, I would say that angle kind of comes about from two things. Like, um, A, it was gaining the access to Springer. So I knew I had about half an hour with him. So I was thinking, okay, I didn't really go in with like a clear cut, um, defined angle. I was going to let the conversation go where it, where it took me. Uh, and then also prior to that, leading up to it, the glue guy stuff, the person he is in the clubhouse, that just kept coming up naturally in all the conversations I had had with people around him, whether it's AJ Hinch, uh, Alex Sintron, Michael Brantley, uh, Tori Hunter, everyone. And this is like, I didn't even have to pry for it. Everyone was just opening up and telling me these things about his personality. Like people couldn't stop um, gushing about his personality. So that's kind of where that angle um, was derived from. And I think it's kind of played out you know, um, in reality now, like I went back and before this recording, I went back and read the feature and it's interesting the things that people said about him because we're seeing it play out right now where he's tying up Vladdy, for example. Uh, he's dan you know, he's become a sensation on, uh, on Twitter, on like the Blue Jays Twitter account, uh, the content producers at the Blue Jays, every time the camera focuses on Springer, they get, a, they get massive retweets and likes because he's always doing something, um, you know, vivacious or something um, fun. And that's kind of what people were telling me about him. He's just a fun guy who gets along with everybody, whether it's the Vlads the, or the um, Carlos Correa's, the, the stars, or even the 25th man on the roster. Uh, and I think one thing that Hinch said to me as well that really stood out was that he's just got a way of reading the room he's like a savant when it comes to reading people and i think you know the proof is in the pudding with what we're seeing now on camera with springer and that's not even mentioning the type of hitter he is right this is just all from a personal person to person perspective yeah you you did a good job of stealing my next question there because what i wanted to ask you about and maybe you can kind of broaden this out generally to your work is how rewarding it is to see things sort of play out like you said, and the one that thing that stood out to me, like you mentioned the Hinge Savant thing, but, you know, Michael Brantley has a quote in your story about him dancing and you, you may, maybe you don't see it all the time and he's a big man, but he's got some moves and stuff. And now, like, there couldn't be more George Springer dancing content out there. So I just wanted to kind of touch with you in terms of when you get ahead of a story like that, um, do you get satisfaction out of seeing these things sort of play out the way that, you know, people have told you in the way you expected to see it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, it is very satisfying. It doesn't happen often because there's a lot of times where, um, you know, it, the, the thing with these stories is they take so long to produce that sometimes, you know, guys get hurt or guys struggle. And then by time the story comes out, uh, it's just, it doesn't resonate the same way you had hoped. Like for the Alejandro Kirk one that you mentioned um, uh, earlier, like that was written way back in May, but then he got hurt. And then, you know, it took a while to come out because it, he didn't come back to the Jays uh, until it was like, I think it was July, right? So it kind of fell flat in my opinion. But yeah, with the Springer one, like the stars just aligned. He was health, well, I mean, he was injured, but when he did come back, he was he's been succeeding uh, and he's been everything that people were talking about uh, to me in that story. So it is very satisfying and it doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's, um, it's a good feeling for sure. 
for my money, my favorite part of that story is the Tory Hunter aspect. Uh, that was a little bit unexpected for me. I didn't really know anything about that. And it's a little bit reminiscent of even sort of the Danny Jansen, Adam Jones situation where people sort of cross paths generationally. And then, um, you know, I don't think Springer ever played Hunter, but um, but but they get close when you know a kid has a relationship with a minor league player and that player goes on and then the kid goes on as well. So I was just wondering how Tory Hunter came into the story because I thought he had some really genuine like nice things to say and it seems like he's really pulling for Springer. You know him saying that you know whenever Springer's playing, you know I'm cheering for the Blue Jays even if it's the Twins, even if it's teams that I grew up with or that I played with. Like that's the extent of his interest in Springer. Yeah, I mean, just first off, talking to talking to Tory Hunter was a thrill for me because, like, I grew up watching that guy. Like, I mean, uh, he, he, I used to draft him in fantasy, like, when I was in grade 9 and 10, like, in high school. He, he, <laughs> but uh, he lived up to it. Like, I mean, I, the thing I remember about Tory Hunter watching him when I was a kid was that smile, right? And that energy he brought to the interview as soon as he picked up the phone. Um, he, I was aware of the tie to Springer in that they met, um, when, when Springer was a kid, and then they had met again in spring training one year when, when the Astros manager, Bo Porter, uh, introduced them. What I wasn't aware of was a couple things. So one, Torrey Hunter told me that um, Springer stood out to him in the crowd that day uh, when he was you know, a minor leaguer and Springer was a kid. And when Torrey Hunter drove home that day and, and randomly over the next several years, he would always wonder to himself, uh, what happened to that kid? Like that specific kid. And I pressed Torrey Hunter on this. Like, I didn't believe it. I was very pessimistic. I was like, all right, you're just, you know, you're making up like a nice little bow tie for this story. Like, I don't, I don't believe it. So I pressed him on it. Right. And he's like, no, honestly, like um, maybe it was the fact that Springer was like a visible minority. And back then in Hartford, Torrey Hunter didn't see anybody you know, out who, who looked, uh, who was a person of color. So he said that he kept thinking about Springer and then he, um, he, he was wondering like, okay, did this guy become a statistic? You know, did like, what happened to this guy's life? And so when he actually met, um, George Springer later on, he said he had goosebumps and it was like, a one of those, like, you know, not life changing moments, but like those, aha, the universe type moments. And then what I also didn't know was how he helped George Springer during the playoffs. Uh, you know, you can read about it in the story about how he identified a flaw in Springer's swing and texted him. And then almost immediately Springer went out and became World Series MVP in 2017. And just one more thing about Tory Hunter that I think is a really cool, genuine um, piece that he added to the story was just mentioning what it's like uh, when he talks to clubhouse attendants about Springer. And Nick, I know you've been in the clubhouse uh, many times, and you've probably seen um, the way some players, especially visiting players, can treat clubhouse attendants. Like I've, like back in the day, I've seen guys, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but players who are now retired, like throw stuff on the ground and expect the clubhouse attendants to pick it up. You know, uh, them get clubhouse attendants to pick pick up food for them and stuff like that. I've seen them treat, some players treat clubhouse attendants poorly, right? These are behind-the-scenes guys who don't often, they have to do a lot of grunt work. And so what Tory Hunter was telling me was that these guys in visiting clubhouses, whether it's Texas or Minnesota, they will rave about George Springer. 
and he, he, Tory Hunter said, like, if you get clubhouse guys speaking good about you, that means you're a good person because these guys see a different side of you. They, they don't see the, they, I mean, they don't see the camera part of you. They see when the cameras are off, how you genuinely are as a human being and how you treat people. That's what these clubhouse guys are privy to. So I thought that was an excellent uh, nugget that Tory Hunter provided. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and when players present themselves to the media or on TV, like there's an incentive to present themselves well, but when they're dealing with these people behind the scenes, especially in visiting clubhouses, there really isn't that incentive. So when guys are treating those people well, it comes from a genuine place. Uh, before we let you go, I did want to touch on the Kirk story. I know you said it didn't resonate the way you wanted it to, but that, you know, like you said, timing uh, is out of your control. But I thought it was a really interesting story. And I was wondering if it came about kind of as simply as seeing Kirk like he's wild, you know he's wildly improbable. The moment you turn on the television, what you know, like he's five eight, two sixty five. He looks like that. Like that is a story in and of itself. Like was the genesis of that story as simple as that? Like wanting to get to the bottom of like how does this guy who's so different from you know the other athletes around him make it to this level? Yeah. So a hat tip to my colleague Gare Joyce at Sportsnet. Um, the idea, the the original part of the idea it came from him and I just kind of pick it up and, and, and ran with it but yeah it, what it ended up being was it didn't I didn't really want to speak to Kirk at all I didn't think that there was anything Kirk could add to this story this was predominantly about how the guys who signed him were able to look past what you just mentioned and you know basically go in on him and 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 and, and bring him into the organization and what it ended up being I think was in my eyes, or what I tried to make it, was just like an inside look at the kind of machinations behind a signing, just in general. And then also to kind of highlight like how these guys who are not really highlighted a lot, like Dean DeSillis, like he's not a name you hear a lot, but he's very integral to the Jays' internal operations. Like he's a guy, he's the guy who found Kirk, he's a scout. He's also the guy who found Santiago Espinal. Uh, he was a big influence in them drafting Strowman. So I kind of wanted to highlight him. Like, here's this, you know, behind-the-scenes person who we'll very rarely hear about. And he's a big part of the organization. And, uh, you know, it also ended up being somebody was talking to me after the piece came out. And they, they, were, they told me that what they liked about the story was that it was a look at how traditional scouting is still important. You know, there's a penchant now to look at numbers, 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 numbers. But... This is actually a success story for just scouting, and it's a reason that scouting should exist. You know, we hear about departments and MLB kind of closing uh, scouting departments, whereas this story kind of shows, like, you know, the power of seeing somebody in person and, you know, forgetting the numbers for a second, it does have its weight. And um, so I think it accomplished all of that. Yeah, I think that, like you said, when I read the story, it felt like a story about scouting in general. Like, obviously, Kirk is kind of the anchor, but it was sort of the story of a scouting trip. And Kirk is kind of the guy that they end up getting out that uh, out of that. How is a guy like Dean when he tells you the story? Because in one sense, with scouts, there's, you know, this is a great accomplishment. So in a sense, he has the ability to sort of puff out his chest and say, I'm the guy who did this. But at the same time, I think, you know, scouts I've talked to in the past, you know, tend to err on the side of being humble or trying to include other people in the story. So how does he 
kind of walk that line while telling the story because it's a really impressive accomplishment for him to find this player. Oh yeah, just like how you mentioned, he was super humble. I, I have the same experience. Every scout who I've ever spoken to, uh, they're super humble about their findings, even though they know that the you know the player that they found is, or or their the job that they did in finding that player was you know amazing. Uh, I think what led me you know it, just parsing his reading the the tea leaves, um, reading behind his words. I think it kind of shows when he told me about his daughter. His daughter is a big Kirk supporter. Uh, she wears a shirt that says um, Alejandro Kirk Fan Club. Uh, she constantly scours social media because um, Dean DeSillis doesn't have Twitter or Instagram. So she'll scour Twitter and Instagram and send him or show him the latest Kirk um, you know, home run or... Uh, you know, him throwing out a runner at second base or anything cool that Kirk does, she'll show him. So I think the pride he took in in that or he takes in that and explaining it to me, like his daughter's connection, I think that just goes to show how much finding Kirk meant to him. I can definitely relate to someone bringing a bunch of Kirk content into their life because my <laughs> girlfriend is a huge Alejandro Kirk fan and uh, I actually bought her for Christmas a Kirk 85 jersey for 2020. So it's already out of date. She might be the only <laughs> one who has one, but this is a big uh, Kirk house that I live in. David, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, taking us through some of these stories. I really encourage our listeners to find David on Twitter and also just like go to his author page on Sportsnet and you can just read through the stories. The features tend to be pretty timeless and especially yeah, seek out the Springer, Kirk and Manoa stuff. Thanks so much for having me, both of you. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, man. The other sort of monumental thing monumental might be a stretch that's happened during this moment's uh homestand is you get the first Barrios game mm-hmm. which in the grand scheme of things is not super important in terms of how he performed because if he didn't perform well that's not a player you give up on that's not a player you get mad about but I think it's nice for Blue Jays fans to exhale with it a little bit because there was a lot of discomfort about the cost of acquisition for Barrios And we talked about that last week, and I think we were both more or less on board with how that went down. But it was a high price, and I think there were some people who were a little bit nervous about it, and it would definitely encourage them to see him come in and give you that sort of of top-of-the-rotation type performance in his first start. And we'll see what he does against the Red Sox as well. Um, what, what kind of stood out for you in that start? Because I know, like, I've, you know, I've definitely seen Barrios pitch plenty of times, but I haven't kind of keyed in on exactly what he was bringing in the same way that I do now that he's in a Blue Jays uniform. So that was fun to see. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was very exciting. You know, it wasn't quite David Price, but also not a rental. Um, And, you know, he's, I mean, David Price was like Cy Young caliber that year. Um, And, but he was really good. He kind of, it was kind of like a bend, not break situation. Like it was a little bit shaky. I think the first couple innings, there were some, there were some hits and some hard hit balls. Um, but once he sort of got comfortable, I thought it was, it was really really encouraging. I, you know, I know a lot of the, the the concerns about the prospect cost, uh, they keep they continue to you know dissipate. Uh, the more we hear about you know the varying opinions in the scouting world on Austin Martin, um, 
but yeah, it it was extremely high, and it there there is a bit of pressure there, and it was it was great to see him succeed. You know, great to see uh, the curveball uh, work in the way that it did, and I think you know, uh, especially like fourth inning on or something like that, he he really sort of had it dialed in and and uh, and looked really good, and and you know that's the Blue Jays starters have been pretty good all year, but definitely you know, <laughs> definitely sort of riding the the, the fine line between uh, being good enough and not. Uh, and he just like really changes the game there, and also you know, ideally helps the bullpen by like giving more innings out of the out of the starters and requiring fewer innings from the bullpen. Which, uh, since it's still in a bit of a uh, bit of a state, even with the additions, you know, you still got guys like Romano and Hand trying to figure out their their uh, their sliders in a post sticky stuff world. Uh, yeah, that's really important too. Yeah, just from an. Like from a performance perspective, I agree with what you said. Like he basically did sort of the good version of what he does, which is not truly dominant necessarily, but um, you know, able to miss enough bats, able to work his way out of trouble, able field to his give position you, really well too. Field his position, fun. give you innings, um, which I I I don't want to downplay what he does because that makes it sound like he's a fourth starter. He's better <laughs> than that, but yeah. he's not like you said. He's not David Price. From a purely aesthetic perspective, though, I really love like a nice curveball, mm-hmm. and he's he's got one. I, I just find it, I don't know, it's so much. I don't know. It just it's it's nicer to watch. Like a, a hard slider can be impressive, but like a curveball with a ton of movement, um, his is actually faster than most, to be fair. But like a little, not the Ryu sort of true looping curveball, yeah. but a curveball with a little bite. His has a ton of horizontal movement, which is interesting as well. Like he's a starter who throws his curveball more than he throws any other pitch, which is super rare yeah. because normally it's hard to get strikes with that pitch consistently enough to make it your number one offering. Um, yeah, he's got an interesting combo. That you know the fastball is not special, but it's good enough, and the curveball works well off of it. And then he's got you know the sinker and the changeup as well. He's got a lot of weapons. Um, that make him fun to watch. You can think along with him. Like I, I like watching pitchers where you can think along with the sequencing. It's why I always hated watching Ari Dickey because it was like, oh, it's another knuckleball. I wonder, oh, it's two one. How's he going to attack it? Is it going to be a knuckleball? Okay, cool. Like it, it's not, it's not fair because like in many ways, Ari Dickey obviously has this truly unique and special knuckleball, and I probably should have been appreciating that. And I might, maybe I was for the sort of first three or four starts that I saw him. But by start eight, <laughs> it was like, oh, here comes another knuckleball. Let's hope it doesn't get to the backstop. So Rios is one of those guys that is is fun to watch because he's got the four different weapons and he's got this really cool curveball. And I'm happy for him because I think, again, when you're the big acquisition for a team, and especially in the context of them coming home and there being more tension around them, uh, I'm sure he wanted to show well. Um, and it gives him the ability to exhale, right? Because if you have a first bad start, like you, I think it's hard to get comfortable until you have your first good outing. Mm-hmm. He already got that out of the way. Like if he gets totally bombed by the Red Sox tomorrow, um, this weekend, obviously that will be a bad outcome for the Blue Jays and for him. But in some ways, it won't be that big a deal. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. But uh, and just overall, yeah, it it, it is it's. He's just. He's, I think you put it well that it's not dominant, but it, but it just it works very very well. I think the, I think we saw that the fielding is a is a big component of that. It kind of, you know, definitely not a lot of comparisons to say Mark Burley, but that was always one of his, uh, the hallmark of him. And I think that really you know, 
just those those extra outs matter that you know if you're able to make plays that other pitchers aren't it's just that uh it, it it is it is a marginal sort of thing but i think that's uh that's really helpful to him especially because yeah it's not it's not a special fastball like you say it just he he has a his weapons that he can make work um which we're we're all we're all about around here i mean Hyunjin Ryu certainly not not that guy either even Alec Manoa is like you know it's a good fastball but uh it's that slider and the uh you know the game has kind of gone uh in a different way, you know, well, not in a different way, because I guess it was always, you know, you, you want to overpower guys, but uh, there's so much velocity. A lot of it's in bullpens now, but there's so much velocity, and then the Blue Jays are kind of working a, a different path here uh, and and managing to pull it off, I think, especially in the rotation. Yeah, there's no Noah Syndergaard type mm-hmm. in the Blue Jays rotation, right? Like, there's no, you know, Nate Pearson type, and there won't be until maybe 2022, and we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Like, they do have those guys who, you know, these these are all the kind of cliches that you generally hate hearing on the broadcast, but I'm going to use them now anyway. But, like, <laughs> the guys who know how to pitch, the guys who, you know, can paint the corners, command the zone, and they're not... Manoa's a little bit of a different animal because he has almost... He has stuff on account of movement more so than he has... Like, he can get good velocity, but it's more about the movement because his command can be pretty spotty, as we've talked about all the hit batters that he's experienced. Barrios got on that train as well, sure which did. is... Good to see, you know, like, <laughs> call me old fashioned, just got to intimidate the opponents. That's uh, that's what the Blue Jays have got to be about. So, uh, yeah, Barrios is getting involved with that, too. Um, and, yeah, the rest of, you know, Ross Stripling's not overpowering anyone. Like, Ray's kind of the only guy yes, that they have yeah. who does that. And even that is sort of like this year is when he found that velocity. Like, that hasn't, like, he's been overpowering in a sense, but not through raw velocity before. Mm-hmm. So that hasn't been the Blue Jays, yeah, hasn't been their MO or what you expect from the staff. But, you know, the staff, as we mentioned before, has been absolutely outstanding in the last stretch. So you can't exactly complain because they're not throwing hard enough. On the other hand, you know who maybe could throw harder would be some of the guys in the bullpen other than Jordan Romano. Uh, <laughs> it would be helpful because they don't have any velocity down there. To be fair, their best guy right now is probably Simber and then Meza. So you don't necessarily need it. But uh, seeing Soria go out kind of right away after acquiring him, not ideal. Right. And this group is is still is still scary. Like we've talked about the stabilization. I think that is still true to an extent. Richards... Um, has been really handy, especially multi-inning. Simber's been really good. Brad Hand hasn't been great. No. And Soria is, is now non-existent. And, you know, Nate Pearson see, doesn't seem to be imminent, if nothing else. Like, he's still going to need some time. I don't know when that happens. So we, we kind of been counting on him to come back and be a difference maker. It's hard to say if that's going to happen in time, um, you know, Julian Merriweather's a name we don't say around here a lot. I got some guff for my over-under on the innings with him earlier this season, but <laughs> he's starting to feel pretty confident about that one. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, uh, all of a sudden, the the it's not. I don't say we got crazy optimistic about it. We didn't get wild. But I think at one point I said that maybe they could be 13th or 15th best bullpen in baseball down the stretch, and that'd be good enough. And that statement... Uh, I have less confidence in now than I did a week ago. Yeah, you know they've got some they've got some decent options, but yeah, it's definitely it is not the White Sox. I think we talked about this last week. And, and Pearson, I, I was uh, uh, Ross Atkins was speaking on. I want to say I think it was Baseball Central on Sportsnet this week, uh, and was asked about Pearson and was basically like, you know, the ball's exploding out of his hand. He's physically everything's fine. 
Uh, it's just a matter of like execution and uh, getting it. And it's like, oh, right. OK, so he still can't throw strikes or, or something, you know, whatever, whatever was was going on before maybe isn't fixed. And he he said, you know, he's going to need probably several uh, rehab starts or rehab rehab outings uh, before he can come up and help. And uh, I'm very curious to see. Uh, where the ball is going, but uh, you know he it, the bullpen could absolutely lose, use a guy like him, and I think you know we saw last year in the playoffs what what Pearson could mean to this team in that kind of a role. And you're right that there there is, I mean, sorry, sorry doesn't even throw that hard, but there but losing him hurts, especially like I mean, Saucedo came in and was not good, but was kind of thrown to the wolves a little bit, except you know with the apart from you know there's not a lot of wolves when you have an eight run lead, but uh, but I think it was maybe surprising that he was in the big leagues so quickly again and 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 in that spot so i give him a bit of a break on on that but uh but yeah it, it is a weird collection uh and it is a collection that's like sort of the way that it's self-sorting is definitely not the way i would have expected uh rafael delise has looked better and that's going to terrify people but i think that you know the leverage is going to be dialed up a little bit for him coming up um We'll see. We'll see if that's still true. But on the other side of the Red Sox series, because uh, who knows what could happen. But I, I think there's there's definitely more trustworthy options back there. There's definitely like veterans and guys you you uh, you just you know have the have the stuff to get big leaguers out. Uh, but it's you know it, it's it's on the margins there, and it's not it's not Craig Kimbrell and Liam Hendricks. Uh, that is for sure. Yeah, I think we do need to have the Dolice talk, uh, and it, it's a it's always a perilous one, right? Because even when Dolice is at his best, you know, there's a wildness to what he brings. Like mm-hmm. he is consistently missing lots of bats, and he's consistently walking lots of guys. And you know, when he's doing well, he can work around the walks. Like even his last seven outings are seven scoreless with nine Ks and two hits. Like, that's the best of what he can do because he's really hard to score up with all the movement on his pitches. He doesn't necessarily... He works out of the zone a lot, which sometimes is good because he gets guys to chase, which is ground balls or it's strikeouts. But, you know, even in that seven innings, there are three walks. Like, even when he's at his best, there's (laughs) that threat of putting guys on for free. And in high-leverage spots, like in 2020 he was a guy for high leverage spots and he earned that because he had the, you know, he had the really slim ERA, but you know, the peripherals weren't quite where the ERA was, but he, he makes it, he misses a lot of bats and he's hard to make hard contact on. And that can't be said about a lot of the guys in this bullpen. And he does seem to be rolling right now. So it's scary to kind of step out on that ledge and say, I believe in Rafael Dolis. I just don't. (laughs) Yes, it is. It's very. I don't. I don't know if I'm ready to do it, but I'm tempted to because I think he's sort of the same guy. He's returned to being a proxy, the same guy he was in 2020. I just don't think that he was as good in 2020 as we actually have in our head because he had the tiny ERA. Um, mm-hmm. Like I don't know. Like how do you feel about <laughs> Dolis or Brad Hand in in a seventh inning in a close game. Yeah, like, give me Dolis at this point. I mean, Brad Hand needs to show a bit more. I will say that Romano, uh, as I noted in the piece that I did uh, Thursday night, uh, the the spin rate, the RPMs on his slider have, have ticked back up. Uh, so even though he was bad on Wednesday, um, 
maybe that's a good sign. I don't think you know the fastball RPM has not, and you know the, the he spin, was, spin rate isn't everything, was, but he's you know he was bad, but he was missing his like the stuff was still good yeah. on Wednesday. Like he he was throwing a hundred a few times, like he was blowing guys away, like the. I know the RPMs have gone up and down, but the slider is still a really, really good pitch. Like, I mean, Romano is a less extreme version, but he does have a little bit of that wildness in him. He is—he doesn't have great command, you know what I mean? Like, he is a guy who's sort of purely blowing guys away, and he can miss his spots and give up a home run here and there. I understand the results with him have not been as good recently, mm-hmm. and the correlation between that and the sticky stuff is undeniable, so I'm not going to be the guy who said that it hasn't had an effect and this is a fluke and everything. I think it has. I think you have to move down your priors with him slightly, but there's a level of disbelief in Romano right now and a level, a lack of trust for most Blue Jays fans. And I would encourage people to have a little bit more trust in Romano. Like he, he still throws super hard. The slider is still a really good pitch. Command is always going to be an issue. Yeah. You know, he's not Liam Hendricks, He's not one of the very best relievers in baseball, but I, I still feel okay with him in a very tight spot. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that there's also, you know, there's an adjustment period, and we're and we're in it. And some guys are are going to find ways to to make it work post sticky stuff crackdown, right? And there's still time. And I think that's kind of like the bet that they're making on Brad Hand, like Atkins again in the the baseball center central interview acknowledge that you know he may not you know if he can get back to being what he what he's been uh then he can help you in the seventh eighth ninth but if he isn't then he was going to you know have a different type of role back there so they're they're going in with their eyes wide open about who brad hand is uh, i'm not sure you know maybe the manager uh maybe <laughs> needs they should to have be... had their eyes wide open before they acquired him well would have been <laughs> well but i think that's the bet right i think it's because you know you're giving up riley adams who's like you know just not yeah. It's nothing. Not not a guy that you have to worry about, but who is occupying a forty man spot, um, and, and you know there's still two months left. You've got the magician Pete Walker. You had Ross Stripling praising uh, praising the Pete Walker special on Thursday night. Who you know told him to you know keep his leg kick, uh, long, like hold the leg kick longer. I don't know. He was getting down the slope too early. Is something that uh, Stripling is the way he put it. Uh, which, uh, whatever, whatever it was the hell they were doing, uh, it sure worked on Thursday night. Um, and you know, I, it's, we, we always, you know, we credit Walker, but there's, there's more than just, you know, there's Matt Bushman and I'm sure there's other people in the, in the organization who are out there, you know, trying to maximize what these pitchers can do. It's, it's not just one guy, you know, magically figuring, figuring out how to make Ross Stripling into like <laughs> somehow a very, very good MLB starter after the disastrous start to the season that he had. Um, but I don't know. That's, that, that's also part of the bet with hand. So I would love to see him <laughs> dialed back in terms of leverage. Like, 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 let's get some blowouts here and, and, and get some of these guys some work. But I guess that's what happened on Wednesday. And, uh, uh well, that's, I think that's it almost you know, that's, went sideways on them. Yeah. That's what happened with Dolis, right? They've dialed back the leverage mm-hmm. because he hasn't proved trustworthy. And now I think like we've said, he potentially is working ways, his way back. So, you know, hand, can go down that same road. Like there are plenty of games left in the season. It might be that hand goes and works low leverage for two and a half weeks, looks great. And by the end of the year is one of their top guys in the seventh or eighth mm-hmm. inning. Like that's a hundred percent on the table. I wouldn't gr- give up on hand. I was never big on the hand acquisition mm-hmm. in the first place, but yeah, you know, you can't give up on a guy because of two bad innings. I will say that, you know, 
I like Pete Walker a lot, you know, personally, professionally, like I've had good interaction with him. He's a great guy. Same thing with Bushman, really smart guy, good interaction with him. The PR that they have is pretty good. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, Robbie, yeah, I get like Robbie Ray stripling are, are a big deal. And Matt's at times is a bit of a reclamation project. But like the Blue Jays pitching over the last couple of years has been like very firmly in the back half of the league, like not particularly <laughs> good. And they've had, you know, bullpens this year where they've had a hard time kind of finding guys who can give them solid innings. I'm not saying that these guys aren't good at their job, but I just think that there's this notion among a lot of Blue Jays fans that like, oh, Walker and Walker's kind of face it, but like, yeah, Walker Bushman will get their hands on some guys and then it's going to be great. And they can that can happen occasionally, but also look at the bullpen all this year. Like if Pete Walker <laughs> was like the greatest magician in the history of pitching, he would have been able to get some decent innings out of somebody in this bullpen. And again, it's not like a, a criticism of them because Ray and Stripling are good examples, but it's also just not a guarantee. It's not like, oh, we have a guy who has done some stuff with some pitchers and therefore he can do anything with any pitcher. That's not exactly how it works. Right. No, that's well said. Uh, but the, their their PR has been exquisite. Uh that, 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 like that's not going to go down well with a lot of a lot of Walker truthers out there. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Walker truther. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Pete, if you're a listener. Again, like I, yeah, I don't have a bad thing to say about either of them. It's just interesting because I feel like a lot of other fans fan bases are probably less engaged with the pitching coach, maybe less even aware of who the pitching coach is. But for the Blue Jays, the yeah, the fandom has really latched on to the pitching coach brain trust that they have well he has been here forever which is a which is a part of it I, like buck buck martinez on the broadcast was saying that walk played for him the year that buck managed or the year and a half or whatever it was um, yeah i remember liking watching pete walker as yeah. a pitcher i was like oh here's an, a competent long reliever who will give you two <laughs> or three innings and you know he throw, he doesn't throw hard but he's got an interesting splitter like i can picture watching pete walker pitch very clearly he has yeah. been around the franchise forever and like you said that probably helps like if you had a pitching coach that you got two years ago and he had never played for the team before and he was someone who came from like, yeah, you know, he was the Reds pitching coach and then you got him in 2019. Yeah, you'd probably be a little bit less, which is, you know, Bushman, um, I guess, is a little bit in that camp where I know he was with the organization, but not for an extended period of time. And I, his name recognition among Blue Jays fans is probably not nearly as high. Mm, for sure. All right, before we wrap here, I think you know we've we've talked about the Red Sox um, a little bit in the early going. That's the weekend series we're teeing up. It's a lot of games. If the Blue Jays can win the majority of them, which would be three, that would be an enormous uh, little piece of progress for them. It looks like they're getting Ivaldi, Pavetta, and Richards, which it seems like that's who they always get. Like I, mm. I feel like I haven't seen Martin Perez uh, face the. I don't know if that's happened this year. Um, it seems like they've been getting those guys, which is not necessarily bad. Like Eovaldi is really good, but Pavetta and Richards have been more of a mixed bag. They're not going to get the Chris Sale return. That's not happening this weekend. So that's, I don't know, good or bad. Again, I'm dubious that Sale's going to be a huge difference maker right away. And then, uh, yeah, the Red Sox bullpen isn't that great either, but they did get Matt Barnes back. Uh, Taco guys with nasty curveballs. He is uh, pretty dominant back there. But I... The Red Sox aren't a team where if you fall behind in the fifth, you feel like the game's over, which can be mm. said about the Yankees and at times the Rays as <laughs> yeah. well. 
and the White Sox. Yeah, there's a few teams. A few teams in the AL that have good bullpens, uh, unlike the Blue Jays. But the Red Sox aren't one of those ones where you're like, oh, the game is over. I think you're more worried about keeping the Red Sox offense down late in games than you are about your ability to come back. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting series. I mean, if they say they win, even if they win two or three, that is a very, very successful um, homestand. Road, home, home homestand. Very successful homestand if they win two or three, I think. Uh, if they somehow won all four, that would be sort of paradigm shifting for the entire season. And if they lose three or four, then I think it's really going to take the air out of the run they've been on. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I think it, I think it will, but you know, uh I think they're going to do it. I think uh, I think they've made a good bet here by being buyers at the deadline and uh and trying to trying to get the whole city and country wrapped up in in what they're doing. I think that they're, you know, 40% playoff odds are not great. Um the the roster is not objectively perfect, but they can still have a lot of fun down the stretch here and I I think that this would be uh, a great way to kick it off. Uh, you know, obviously the homestand has been great so far. It's it's going to be, you know, no matter what happens over the weekend, barring say a sweep, you know, the, it's you're going to look back in this homestand and be like, okay, that was good. Um, but yeah, they can just take it up that extra notch and, uh, and they should, my advice to them they, is they should, why, the why not, Red Sox, why yeah. not win them all? I, I think also <laughs> right. the, you know, with the Olympics ending too, like, I think that, that this could be the moment if the Blue Jays could have a, like say three wins, uh, like they could really kind of capture the attention of mm-hmm. sort of the more casual fan, and um, we'll see if it plays out like that. Uh, we will see you next week on Blue Jays Happier. I'm sure we'll discuss um, whether that optimism is founded or unfounded, and we'll have some more barrios to discuss. And uh, yeah, we hope you'll tune in then. <laughs>